and welcome to Intrigue Explained, the geeky international relations show where two former diplomats geek out about what's happening in the world, try to explain it to you, and apparently get into arguments for your amusement. My name is Dimitri, and with me is my intrepid co-host, John. John, how are you? Doing well, Dimitri. Back, back, uh, back in Chicago. So no more travel issues like last week, being snowed in, in in Canada. We recorded the last podcast with John having slightly dodgy internet, which was, I think, fine on the podcast, but meant that everything John was saying was repeated back in my headphones four times. So it felt like I was debating an entire gallery of Johns. And I promise it was unintentional. <laughs> it just further goes to explain why I lost. <laughs> on today's uh, show, we've got a really interesting debate topic that we wanted to get into, which is whether it is in China's interest to arm Russia, to provide Russia lethal aid. There was reports from US intelligence services that they were considering doing this. And what we wanted to do was really just mull this over from from every angle if we can, regardless of what we personally would like to, to see in the world. But before we get there, a couple of pieces of housekeeping. Uh, Thank you so much for the positive reaction from especially last week's episode. We'll do our best to take your comments on board as we did in this episode. Uh, If you are enjoying the content, subscribe, leave us a like, tweet at us to tell us what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. Uh, Tweet us as you did this week, your input into our topics. We'll try to announce them nice and early. And as always, all of our work is based on the phenomenal stuff coming out in the International Intrigue newsletter. You can subscribe to that at bit.ly forward slash International Intrigue, and the links will be everywhere you find this podcast and this recording. So please do sign up. Before we go any further, John, there was a really breaking news that I want to get your take on. The lab leak theory for COVID-19 confirmed? Uh, I wouldn't go quite that far. I think the US is kind of... It's interesting that they're showing they're working a little bit, that some of the organizations within the government are saying that we have you know, low to medium confidence, but other agencies are saying we haven't got there yet. Having lived in China for five years and dealt with or four and a bit years, having and de- dealing with the Communist Party and, and knowing how the Chinese government operates this theory was always plausible to me um i i kind of resented it in during the pandemic like during the lockdowns when new york times and other mainstream media outlets were kind of saying oh if you believe this you're a racist conspiracy theorist because it was if anybody understands you know that how china operates and how how you know local governments are terrified of folks up the up the chain and it's very plausible that something an accident not a bioweapon to be clear but an accident happens and local government authorities you know cover it up because they're scared that was always a plausible theory uh, let me reiterate it, it doesn't mean it that's what happened it's just that it's not crazy to suggest that that's why um and i think i think it's interesting that the u.s is kind of you know, one 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 kind of um, take on that is that the U.S. is using it as a uh, sort of like a a cudgel to beat mm-hmm. China with at the moment to re-raise the specter of this. Um, I think probably the truth is a little bit less um, nefarious than that. I think it's probably just various agencies within the U.S. government not doing what you know, not being on the same page and just saying what they want when they want. But yeah, I mean, it's always been something that's plausible to me. Um, and uh, you know, again, might not be what happened, but it might be. There are questions about what this means as an event, and there are questions about how our media ecosystem reacts to it. And I think they're both medium to low interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good way of summing it up. Summing, summing it up. I think it's interesting, personally, um, about you know when the media. It's this idea that, that that so much, particularly in the world of where we kind of operate, Dimitri, the the world of geopolitics and and governments. It, there's a lot of stuff that is just not knowable mm-hmm. and probably will never be knowable. That That's the reality of this, of how COVID-19 started. We we will probably, there's probably about 20 people on the planet who will know for sure how it started. The folks in the lab, maybe Xi Jinping and one or two other folks, and maybe an intelligence agency at the highest level, maybe. And that's probably how it's going to be for the rest of time. And yet the media generally needs, or we as consumers of the media demand certainty and well is it true or is it not is it a fact or is it not a fact it's very simple and you're like well no the answer is 
Maybe it happened. Maybe it didn't. We can't rule it out. We can't say it's what happened. And then I, I think that the, the issue is when the media tries to give that certainty and call things baseless conspiracy theories, you then undermine the trust because there's people out there saying, well, I don't think it is baseless, but okay. And then it comes out two years later that it wasn't baseless. And you're like, well, I don't know what to trust now. And all of that can be avoided if you just kind of say, we don't know. And that sucks and it doesn't feel good and it's cognitively dissonant, but deal with it. Yeah. I guess I also come at it from the like, okay, well, what are the policy implications? Like if fundamentally from a policy perspective, what is the difference between the virus escapes from a Chinese medical facility and then the Chinese government covers it up and doesn't give enough warning versus the virus emerges from a wet market because a bat and a pangolin, I don't know. I don't follow the science. But like, just it emerges somehow organically and then the Chinese government isn't sort of covers it up and isn't transparent enough about it getting out. What is necessarily the policy in terms of our reaction? What, where is the policy difference? And I appreciate that there should be one, but especially in the absence of certainty, I find it hard to get to the end of that equation. Um, purely from a policy mm. reaction sense, not from a kind of moral standpoint. Yeah. But uh, political. But sense, I think yeah. what you were saying, uh, like I just immediately think back to the Nord Stream pipeline explosion. Again, there's 20 people in the world who know what happened there and we may never know um, and we just have to kind of keep, find a way to move forward. Sit with that, right? Yeah, exactly. But uh, we do have some stories on which we, we do have some idea of what the truth might be and before we get into our debate wanted to quickly as always look at two stories from intrigue that we think are interesting and worth kind of saying a few words about maybe starting john with the nigerian elections yeah so we we've been following this one relatively closely in in uh, international intrigue it's a big deal and i think probably african elections and politics don't get enough coverage generally outside of you know the country in which they're happening um but nigeria is you know, starting with some facts, it's it's a country that by the middle of this century will uh, surpass the US and become the third most populous country in the world behind India and China. Um, it's got Africa's largest economy. Uh, a lot of Nigeria's, um, you know, economic productivity comes from a huge youth population. So it's a young country. Its demographics are, you know, compared to like Asian countries or Western countries, its demographics are really good. So there's a sense that Nigeria has a lot of um, positives uh, for the future. Um, and they had an election last Saturday. Uh, so, you know, the election's a big deal because you're leading a country that's you know, got a lot of power, a lot of size, a lot of economic heft. Uh, the election was a little bit controversial insofar as there were widespread reports of, um, you know, uh, gangs turning up to polling places and huge lines and ballots being stolen and whatnot, which is, you know, it's concerning in and of itself, but is not kind of massively unexpected in, in Nigeria. These things happen. I don't think that, you know, I don't think people thought it would be a perfect election like it would be in, you know, Sweden or something where everyone goes and politely says thank you. Uh, these things are serious and, and, and very, very, I guess, hotly contested, let's put it that way. Um, anyway, so it took a couple of days for the for the uh, the results to trickle in. There was Voting was postponed in some areas, but on Wednesday... Uh, the country announced that it had a winner um, and his name is Bola Ahmed Tinubu from the ruling party. So the, the current president is stepping down, but his kind of handpicked successor from the same party, uh, the All Progressives Congress, won. He won with 37% of the vote. And I think it was interesting that it was something around about 10% uh, of the population eligible voters in Nigeria actually backed him. So 37% of the people who voted voted for him, but only 10% of Nigerians voted for this guy. So not a strong mandate if you think of it in that way. And then I guess the other interesting thing is that, uh, that since, since Nigeria has become a democracy in 1997, it has been um, a two-party kind of government or political system, much like the US, for example. But this time, a third candidate, a guy called Peter Obi, uh, did really, really well. He was very popular with the young folks in Nigeria um, and he won 25% of the vote. He came third, but, you know, not by much. Um, and there's this idea that maybe he's smashed open Nigeria's two-party system um, and, and, you know, the next election could be a lot more free and open or 
open at least with lots of candidates. So, you know, it's a, it's a big, it was a big election. Um, I think the, the key takeaways are that, you know, it's a big job. Um, this guy seems like he's pretty competent. He was the governor of Lagos for a while, uh, the, the country's biggest city, um, and seemed to have done a good job there. I, I, I'm not sort of an expert in Nigerian uh, politics at that level. But um, yeah, so, I mean, big election. We have a winner. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just a couple of things I picked up actually from, from your folks reporting on this that I found really interesting. Nigeria's in quite a lot of financial trouble. A huge portion of the, yeah. the budget every year is going just to servicing debt and they are saddled with this uh sort of gordian knot of having they subsidize fuel a lot for their population which is unsustainably expensive but also almost impossible to stop doing without triggering massive waves of discontent um and so they're kind of trapped in this cycle of effectively paying out money and growing further and further into debt to service those payments. This despite being a massive, a fairly substantial oil exporter in its own right, uh, Nigeria. So I found that to be really interesting. I also think it, it, it's worth saying that the the opposition has said that they will challenge these results, but through the court and peacefully, yeah. uh, which is uh, of course very, very welcome. Um, and that from the point of view of a court challenge, anything is possible, but I think your reporting and some of the stuff you cited suggests that there were very similar election irregularities last time around and the courts didn't overturn the results. So it, it, seem, it seems likely that President Tinubu will be the president of Nigeria for the foreseeable future um, and will have to manage some of these immense challenges, many of which frankly happened on the watch of his party. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's, um, you know, it's one of those... It's one of those it's one of those places where there's a lot of hope, but there's so much work to be done. And, you know, I think the history would suggest that you probably are smart if you temper your expectations of what, of what he can achieve. Fair enough. On to our, on to our next uh, story. This is for, for, the, for the roughly two, view, two listeners we have that aren't from the United Kingdom. <laughs> this, one, this one I'm going to let you do most of the heavy lifting on because you are our resident Brexit trade uh, guru. Um, but, I, you know, I think, I think the, the, the headline story is the UK and the EU reached a deal over the Northern Irish protocol issue. But why don't you take this one, Dimitri? Because I, I, I wouldn't want to, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't want to get into your one area of expertise that you are passionate about. <laughs> Reluctantly passionate. This is one of those like... Uh... <laughs> Uh, it, it, it's like it's like Love Island. Everything I've learned about this has been against my will, but it's added up to a decent amount. <laughs> there, there you go. go. Northern Ireland Protocol is yes. Love Island. <laughs> that's that. That's going to come back to haunt me. So very very <laughs> briefly, for those who don't follow this issue, teach me how. The backstory to all of this is that when the United Kingdom left the European Union. That meant that they were no longer in a customs union and single market with the European Union. And so borders had to go up between the UK and EU. And one of the places that those two blocks intersect is Northern Ireland and Ireland. Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. Ireland is an e- The country of Ireland is an EU member state. And those two places have a lot of very, very painful history of sectarian violence over that question. And the way that violence had been resolved uh, 25 years ago is through something called the Good Friday Agreement, which is a very complex compromise that is basically built on, and I'm massively oversimplifying here, letting Northern Ireland be part of the United Kingdom, but making it feel for those living there as much as possible, like they were also part of Ireland. And partly one of the things that was built on is the fact that there were no borders on the island of Ireland because the EU meant you didn't need any. The UK leaving the European Union meant they had to put a border somewhere. There were years of contentious negotiations. And ultimately, the result was to effectively put that border in the Irish Sea. So between the island of Ireland and the the rest of the United Kingdom. That kind of compromise wasn't beloved by unionists, those who feel very strongly about Northern Ireland's place within the United Kingdom. 
but it was seen as the only alternative to building a border on the island of Ireland, which was seen as risking reigniting the conflict. Hugely contentious, hugely contentious decision negotiated by the current UK Prime Minister's predecessor's predecessor, Boris Johnson, and hailed as a glorious deal when it was passed and subsequently attacked by him pretty much relentlessly. The reason it is considered controversial is that it effectively placed a border inside the United Kingdom. So between the rest of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland, this was hugely contentious. The whole idea was that that border would sit there, but goods that were moving from the rest of the UK to Northern Ireland and staying there wouldn't be subject to the same checks as everything else. This new deal basically takes that existing framework and doesn't so much as change it as move the number of goods that fall into that safe and not subject to EU rules category and broadens it significantly, making it so that if a truck is going to stock a supermarket in Belfast with goods from the UK, it doesn't need to be carrying an individual piece of documentation for every single individual product in the lorry. It also includes a kind of mechanism to potentially allow 30 members of the Legislative Assembly of Northern Ireland to potentially veto changes to EU law that would apply to Northern Ireland, or rather recommend a veto to London, uh, which is seen as a, a kind of break, a Stormont break on uh, the EU's ability to affect life in Northern Ireland. But the most important takeaway story for those who obviously aren't in the United Kingdom or Ireland and aren't trying to follow this, the, the big geopolitical thing here is that for about half a decade, the vibes and the relationship between the UK and EU have been very, very bad. Both sides, but I think especially the United Kingdom, have been scoring points off opposition to the EU, off divergence from EU rules, off not giving the EU anything at once. It was a highly contentious relationship. And this new deal seems to have significantly improved the vibes under Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. It feels like the relationship may have turned a corner where the two can really begin exploring where they can constructively rebuild trust and engagement, which is really important for the continent and I think genuinely the world because the UK is a major player in Europe. Yeah, I agree. That's interesting. I mean, that's everything you need to know. I think in about five <laughs> minutes there, it's um, it's it's very interesting. But I have to, I have two very quick questions, and I know we've got to move on here. But one, why do you think the media is covering this so positively um, versus previous solutions? Because to me, this solution seems to have been like it's. I mean, maybe not an obvious one for someone who isn't in the details of it, but like it's not like it's some highly brilliant uh, loophole. It feels like a very obvious kind of like, well, the stuff that's going to Northern Ireland should just go to Northern Ireland. The stuff that's going to the EU should be checked. So that that's one question. It's like, what do you think about the politics of the day has changed? And then the second thing is, what is to stop, and this is a dumb question, but what is to stop a truck going to stock a supermarket in Belfast, like you said, just driving into Ireland because there won't be any checks between Northern Ireland and Ireland? Like, Right, so two really good questions. On the first one, I think, this deal, everything in it is, I mean, there are a couple of clever tricks with the break and whatever, but most of what's in it is, as you say, fairly common sense. But all of it relies on a good deal of mutual trust and cooperation to make work. And that was just missing before. Right. So it's the kind of thing where, you know, uh, and this leads into your second question, in order to make this work, you have to have really good data sharing and customs cooperation between UK and EU officials. Previously, the UK were digging their heels in around even things like uh, the EU wanted to have a couple of customs officials based in Belfast who could like look at customs data in real time. The UK was insisting that their office be in Ireland because and like they were like that was the level of pettiness and mm. that was the the attitude that negotiations were happening in. And so all of these things that are common sense, but are predicated on, we're all going to be cool here, right, fellas, Trust. was absent, mm. which is why I think you're getting some positive coverage. So Sunak actually has genuinely changed Absolutely. 
like he he's actually done a great job on this front in terms of like being less political, less like you know bombastic, and trying to actually get a deal done. It's it, it, he does deserve credit. Absolutely, um, you know I think it's it's mm. been a breath of fresh air. These negotiations didn't take place in the op-ed pages of the Telegraph and the Times. Yeah, there weren't aggressive tweet threads back and forth between the chief negotiators accusing one another of all sorts of things. It was much more a negotiation like you and I are used to where sort of everybody's... Are you saying that electing competent people is important? (laughs) Uh, I I would never dare. Um, I would... Thus excluding myself from ever running from office? John, no. Uh, (laughs) Vote one, chances. Uh, Find the most confident white dude you can and just trust it'll be right on the day. No, uh, it, it did seem... Uh, it did genuinely seem to make a difference. On your second point, it's, it's a really complicated answer, but effectively, the ones who are authorized to use this kind of system, it uses a kind of trusted trader scheme where it is operators that have submitted a lot of paperwork and passed a lot of checks, and it's a combination of data monitoring and risk-based customs where if there is a truck that seems to be dodgy, they can stop it. And there is paperwork that is filed afterwards to demonstrate where stuff went. So while it is still entirely possible that some stuff may get through, on the whole, this won't be a mass problem. And for most of the ones who could do this, who are large enough operators that they would be capable of a deception like this, the risks would massively outweigh the gains. The reputational risks, yeah. All right, well, now that we've put everyone to sleep, let's get on to the main topic. And that brigs us to (laughs) the nerd fight. This is what you came to see. So today, the fundamental question is, is it in China's national interest to provide lethal arms to Russia at the moment or in the near future? Um, And the way we're going to do this is a little bit different from last time where we just directly fought. This time, because one of these cases is harder to make than... The case that it is, is the harder case to make. So John and I are going to take turns steel manning the arguments in favor and then beating the crap out of one another for making them. And so we're going to, in that spirit, we're going to start off with you, John, the argument about Western attention. This was one that was tweeted last quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so let me just give two seconds of context mm-hmm. first. So this this has come out over the last, I would say, maybe 10 days that the, I think a couple of senior US officials, including the head of the CIA, um, Bill Burns, have said publicly that they have seen evidence that China is considering providing weapons to Russia for the use in, in Ukraine. So, you know, it's it's not kind of like coming out of thin air. There is There has been the, these rumblings around the idea that China is considering it. We don't know where that's coming from based very much on my um, <laughs> very high-level knowledge of how these things work, it does seem to me like the CIA has some pretty decent information coming out of Russia. Uh, and during my time in, in China, um, or just before my time in China, um, the Chinese did a very good job of rolling up a lot of CIA assets in China and setting back the CIA's China operations, you know, along like decades. So... I suspect this information, if there is information, it's not just the US kind of, you know, playing mind games, um, has come from the Russian side that they are asking the Chinese to provide weapons or they've they've made a, require, a request to Beijing and Beijing said we'll consider it. That, that's my mm-hmm. sense, but we don't know where it's coming from. But it, there's this idea that Beijing is actively considering providing weapons. Wang Yi, the foreign minister, has said they're not doing that um, and they've been confronted on it. But that, that's, the, that's the background to this issue. And in terms of why they would do it, okay, so obviously the US has warned them not to do it. Um, but from a Chinese perspective, if I was sitting in, in Beijing uh, as, a, as a policymaker, putting the argument to Xi Jinping that we should actually send, you know, I, I don't know what they were going to send, but like, let's say it's rockets and, and, you know, some of the stuff that the US has been sending in terms of, you know, uh, artillery systems and whatnot. Um, I think the biggest and most strong argument would be that it keeps the US and the West's focus on Ukraine. Uh, Obviously, it would make huge news. The US and the West would be outraged. It would damage relationships almost irreparably, you'd have to think, with the US and and Europe. But it it would keep the US focused on winning the war in Ukraine now that China is on the Russian side, um, or even more on the Russian side. Uh, And from China's perspective, any moment 
that the US and Europe are focused on fighting in their backyard is a moment that they're not focused on things like Taiwan or the South China Sea or freedom of navigation operations, you know, around Japan or the Philippines relationship with China and the Coast Guard stuff. Um, and that allows China a bit more breathing room to kind of do what it wants in its own backyard um, by having everyone else's focus elsewhere. You know, someone might think, oh, well, surely the U.S. is big enough and powerful enough that it can do both at once. And I would say that the evidence and the history shows that the U.S. has a lot of trouble doing both things at once. And the idea that they, they would say, you know, oh, we can kind of like focus on Ukraine and, and supply the Ukrainians with weapons and also do, you know, Taiwan focus on Taiwan and supply them with weapons at the same time I think is probably not right so you know that would be the biggest argument I'd say okay so to 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 push back on that in a couple of places you could make the case that actually Chinese engagement would focus attention back on China in a way that it wasn't before especially in Europe the US couldn't possibly consider China a greater threat than they already do it's already their kind of national political obsession but in Europe, the invasion of Ukraine brought home the threat of Russia in a way that countries outside of Northeastern Europe, I don't think, necessarily recognized. You know, you don't have to tell the Estonians twice, but the, uh, the, the French and Germans started taking it a lot more seriously. And China becoming an active antagonist makes it much harder to run the argument in the West among those who want to basically continue peacefully trading with China that China is not something they have to worry about. And there are certainly a lot of people in Europe quietly and loudly making that argument at the moment. So that's, I think, that's argument one. Um, I also think that when it comes to US, and I've said this already, there is nothing you could do to take US focus off China at this point. They are trying to refocus to China now. There are calls for it in Congress. The Republicans are pushing this very hard. And that's without China entering this conflict. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with that. I think I think... Rather than saying that, the fo- that you're pulling China, uh, the U.S.'s focus off China, it's more pulling the U.S.'s focus off the region. So it's like you know not having the political backing for um, you know supporting the Philippines or supporting Australia or supporting Japan or South Korea. You know not not supporting them, not saying oh we're ignoring you, who cares? But just kind of like. I mean, you know as well as I do how these giant bureaucratic systems work. You need everyone aligned to get things done. And if if you're, I mean, we're already seeing some cracks in the armor, so to speak, um, of funding Ukraine in Congress. You know, you turn around and say, oh, we're also going to like deploy a bunch of, you know, troops or whatever to South Korea, or we're going to expand our operations in, in the Philippines, a cooperation in the Philippines. And Congress says, well, you're spending how much more as well as Ukraine? I think that would be how China might see it. Is it just like it just pushes the needle on doing more in in the region? But I, I accept. I don't think I don't think you can say that the US has stopped being focused on China as number one threat, as it were. Um, you know, I think it's just about the only thing American politicians across the aisle agree on. To yeah. be honest, so and so you would in some ways you would risk. Because at the moment, the argument against funding Ukraine in the US, it's not our business and we should be focusing on China. So potentially, if you are visibly funding, if you are visibly funneling lethal aid to Russia and you've become an active protagonist in this conflict, that argument may actually get harder to run. Well, I think, but I think as long as Ukraine, the longer Ukraine goes on and and the idea here being if China's funneling weapons into Ukraine, it'll probably prolong the war. Um, the more you're having the exact conversations that we're having now, right. and that's good because you're not focused and you're not aligned on doing other stuff. Like, I'm not saying it's kind of like people are forgetting about it in terms of like, oh, we forgot China existed, mm. but it's about like not being able to get all the things you need aligned and all the focus you need aligned to actually make a difference in foreign policy and economic policy and all this kind of stuff you're having these arguments. And I think that to China would be the biggest advantage of like the longer the US is involved in Ukraine and the longer the Ukraine war is at this stalemate and that, you know, the Western kind of focuses on what's going on there, the less they're going to be able to get aligned on other stuff. You know, it's an unknowable whether it would work or not, but I think that would be the thing. I think that's a really strong argument for why it is in China's national interest for the war in Ukraine to drag on. I don't think it's necessarily Mm -hmm. as strong an argument for the Chinese to 
for why they to prolong it through the provision of lethal aid unless there was some way they could guarantee that it wouldn't blow back on them well i mean that's that's the diplomatic and reputational argument that i think if you like i mean why don't you why don't you set out what from a like a, a diplomatic sense china's interest would be so we've got the military sense of like okay well it's kind of pulling away focus, prolonging the war, that might be a good thing for them. In terms of their reputation and particularly outside of, you know, the U- US relationship, how would it, why would it be good for them to do it in terms of their relationship with Russia, maybe the other countries in the world? So I, I think of it this way. China's pitch to the world isn't necessarily that they are a replacement for a US kind of one-pole world, but that... The world is multipolar and that you don't have to choose. You don't have to be US aligned. You don't have to follow the US lead. You can, uh, the US doesn't get to have that kind of power. You have options. You can uh, align with others. Yeah. Uh, and I think we had, we had a really good discussion uh, about that, some, some of that last week about multipolarity. Now, here, I think that argument really faces a stark test. Because you have Russia, which is absurdly isolated in practice, very shortly after China promises them a no-limits partnership. They promise them a no-limits partnership, and then a week later, it turns out that that partnership Whoops. has incredibly strong limits, um, you know, that, that amount to not even selling them replacement parts for their aircraft for fear of getting hit with secondary sanctions, no lethal aid, lukewarm support in the UN. Uh, you know, the Chinese position is sort of, uh, you know, they, they don't even support Russia's position so much as just use it as an excuse to slam NATO. There's this sense that if this is... So if you're looking at that as a country that China would hope would be unaligned and thinking about partnering with them in the future... Your question is, well, we can trust the U.S. to have our back because you can watch the U.S. support a country that's not even in an alliance with with the Mm. U.S. It's not in NATO, and the U.S. is supporting them to the hilt. Meanwhile, you've got China that's telling Russia they've got a no-limit partnership, and then when push comes to shove, they're willing to buy... One week later. One week later, they're willing to buy oil and gas at a massive discount. And, you know, so, so I think there is, from their perspective, there is a sense of if China wants to assert itself as someone you can partner with, not merely transact with, and wants to demonstrate... Who has your back. That it has your back. You could make the case that it's, it's, it's especially if Russia's army starts really running out of shells and artillery, um, which isn't off the table if they really start running low on stuff and they come desperate to China hat in hand and everyone can see that happening, there will be, does China have a diplomatic interest? Um, Now, the counter argument to that would be, yes, but that tortures your relationship with the West. And account, and yeah. So, yeah, so I I, I think it's an interesting point that you're kind of, you know, I mean, what it does is shine a light on how much of an F up the words no limits partnership <laughs> was like it, it like if, if it, in 10 15 years when we look back on like the biggest diplomatic blunders of all time it's going to be one of them right like not not the idea that they said we support russia and we have like this tiny bit of wiggle room that in case they uh, do something <laughs> crazy like invade europe that we don't have to support them they literally like you know it was a month or whatever it was before no limits was the translation and and, it, and it, that's what it is in chinese it means that idea of like we are so tight um, and, and that's, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I don't think if they hadn't used that word, because the idea that there is a no limits partnership, except it has limits. Well, can you trust China? And, and I think that's a strong argument, but I think what you were about to say when I sort of jumped in there to make the point is that what China is trying to do is demonstrate an alternative to the world from us leadership, mm-hmm. from us, you know, what the, what the world looks like under you, under the U S and there their strongest, I think, argument will be to say one side is funding the prolonging of this war. The US and Europe are pushing weapons into Ukraine to make this war go longer. We are trying to solve it. We've sent people to Beijing. We are having conversations with 
all sides, you know, we, we had Lukashenko in, uh, in Beijing this week from Belarus to have a conversation. We are trying that, that'll fix it. to get people to the table. <laughs> right. So the argument is that we're trying desperately. We are, you know, we have no sides in this, you know, apart from the fact that we hate war and sovereignty and blah, blah, blah. We have no fight in this. We just don't like war. And that's a really strong argument to places um, that are not so sure about U.S. leadership, perhaps the Middle East, perhaps, you know, particularly Eastern Europe um, and and places that have lived in this, in places where war is a real honest threat and regular specter. The idea that China says, we don't care who's right and wrong morally, or, you know, we're not, well, that's not the interesting question to us. The interesting question is, let's not kill each other. It's a, it's a persuasive argument. The minute, the minute they they send a single shell to Russia, that argument dissolves because they're on the other side doing the same thing, arguably prolonging the war. So I think while I I think your argument is is the is the right one to make, it's not as strong as the idea that like by not doing it, they get more diplomatic. They they they, they stand in in sort of clearer opposition to the US led world, and that's their number one goal. Yeah, I think that's it's it for me, it's interesting to think about that in terms of like who does it play well with? I think the kind of we are international peacemakers uh, to be glib like plays well on Twitter. It plays. It's a good argument to be running with with the general public uh, across the world. I think it potentially increases China's cachet in places like Africa, just in terms of sentiment. Yeah. I think leaders are potentially taking a more leaders of countries maybe taking a slightly different view because one thing China has always banged the drum about is the fact that like your borders and your sovereignty are sacred uh this idea that nobody should nobody should have the right to interfere with anything you do domestically yeah and so oh we are neutral in this situation where one country has just rolled a bunch of tanks into another country even if you kind of accept the russian argument that they were doing that because a minority in that country was being persecuted and let me be clear I do not accept that argument. But even if you do, well, China would never allow that. China's strong position is your territory, your business. And I think leaders are looking at that. And I think leaders are also looking at fundamentally, it's about which allies have your back and which don't. And if you are a US ally or sort of US friendly, if you are Kuwait and the um, and Iraqi tanks roll in, you can count on US support. Uh, it looks like Russia can't count on China's. Um, so I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just. I'm trying. No, to, I'm trying to mean. play this out in my head. Um, I, I don't think. As, but as you yeah, said, they're just I so think, massively screwed up. I think that's the clearest thing is that like they're trying to walk a line that probably doesn't exist. The idea of like, oh, we got to, you know, territorial integrity is principle number one, but also our friend that we just said is our best friend violated the territorial integrity, but we're going to have to overlook that. But not uh, yeah it's they, they've, they've just completely screwed themselves i mean well i shouldn't say they screwed themselves russia, russia screwed, screwed them big time and 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 that's a, that, that that must be a big thing in beijing yeah. right? like there, there must be serious anger at russia or at putin well it, for doing it's got to be at putin because and if there's one thing to take away from this kids is if you are planning to make a gigantic geostrategic decision with global implications tell your foreign minister about it this reporting mm. that I think I think it was out of the FT that came out that Lavrov didn't know they were going to invade until they literally did it. Like he got woken up at 3 a.m. with a phone call that said, we're going. Well, I mean, the military, the, the, the people on the front lines didn't know they were yeah. invading. So if, if you're the Chinese, <laughs> you probably felt reasonably safe offering a no limits partnership because you're talking to Lavrov, who's like, well, come on, we're not going to invade. We're not crazy. Because no one's telling him. Well, I think there's happen. a strong argument that foreign ministers are less and less important or at least less and less empowered. They're not making the decisions. Like Lavrov is clearly not involved in the room when yeah. Putin's making decisions. And I think there's a pretty strong argument that Wang Yi isn't in the room either with uh, Xi Jinping when, when that stuff is happening. But I, I think, yeah, I mean, look, I think, I think that's exactly right what you say. They're walking a line that probably doesn't exist. But I think there's a third, I mean, to move on to another argument that if I would be telling Xi Jinping, I think there's this element too of the US, you know, not bullying China, but the idea that they've come out and said, don't you dare do mm. this. Don't you dare do this. Or we'll, or we'll 
slap sanctions on you, um, you know, don't you behave as we tell you, or there's going to be serious consequences. Um, the minute you say that out loud, you kind of, you know, just like in like when a, when a parent tells their child, don't, don't dare do that. There's this element of like, well, where's the line that when I say, if I stand up to you, does, does the whole thing fall apart? Mm. If China gets told not to do it, says, okay, cool. I'm going to do it anyway and sanction the hell out of me if you want, because we are, we believe we're at a position now where this will all come, like this is a house of cards and you will be exposed because you can't do shit to us. We are China. We are, we've arrived. And no matter what you say, we do what we want, which then shows to the rest of the world. Oh, wow. Like there is actually, and it's again about pushing back on the U S led order. If, if China did that and was happy to do it and came out of it relatively unscathed, which to be clear, I don't think they would, but if they did, you are genuinely saying to a lot of countries around the world, Hey, we are an alternative. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's a really, I think it's a strong point. You can make the case that right now the argue, the poster children for standing up to Western sanctions are Iran, North Korea, Cuba. Um, I don't want to be disparaging, but I think a lot of countries look at those and go, I'm not sure I necessarily want to be where Syria is. I don't necessarily want to be where Iran is. So this kind of concept of are Western sanctions something that you can take on is a really... I want to say existential question, but it's a major it's a major point of well, if if you can't stand up to Western sanctions on supplying arms to Russia, how are you going to s- survive them on retaking Taiwan or on whatever the West asks, mm. or if the West starts making assertive demands, you know, um, about more democracy? Yeah. So there is a, as you say, that that temptation to say, well, where is if we draw the line in the sand? When's the time to, to do it? When's the time to take our stand? Exactly. And how do you, going back to this kind of, how do you build a multipolar world? The only way you could have a multipolar world is if there was a sense that having one of those poles, the West, economically sanction you was a survivable and was something you could thrive yeah, on. Yeah, well, wasn't ideal, but wasn't as big a deal as it, as it has been for the last 30, 50 years. Exactly. And, and, and as you say, you know, if, if, the Chinese, if the Chinese argument is kind of like, well, hold on, we don't have sanctions on Russia. If we want to, if we want to sell them 400,000 rounds of 155 millimeter artillery shells, who are you to dictate who we have commercial relations with mm-hmm. when you are busy mm-hmm. transferring for free HIMARS into this battlefield to Chinese line prolong the conflict? Um, again, it comes back to sovereignty mm-hmm. arguments. How, who are you to dictate who we do business with um, based on your politics? Right. Okay, so I think we can probably sum up those two arguments as pushing back against the US and this kind of idea of the US-led world. Um, and you know, I think if we were not making the, the steel man arguments, we'd say this is probably not the right battle to pick to do right. that. Um, but are there any angles that you can think of or that you would be kind of ma- making the argument for that are more in China's like immediate national interest? So not this like, not esoteric, but not this kind of grand, like we're going to change the world, how the world runs, but just like immediate national interests, like military perhaps or... Yeah, I, I mean, on on that last point, just to quickly finish, I think you're exactly right. But I, I would say if this were 2021 and China was at its most bullish and assertive and most confident... The equation might be different. I just wanted to kind of throw that in. Mm-hmm. Um, they're no longer where Perhaps, they were two yeah. years ago, um, which I think is important. In terms of in terms of short term, um, I sort of I'm not a military expert at all, but something that this war really revealed is that it doesn't matter how good your army looks on parade and in videos that your friendly <laughs> news channels put out and how shiny you think it is. Combat is where you find out if it's worth a damn. The Chinese military has for a very long time faced the challenge that compared to its primary global adversary, the US, which has been fighting a war with somebody pretty much nonstop since like, Forever. yeah, since like yeah. 1812. Um, the, the Chinese military... I shouldn't laugh, yeah, but yeah, like, it's I mean, ridiculous. But yeah, like the, the Wikipedia page on US wars is pretty much 30% of the internet's bandwidth. The Chinese military is comparatively untested 
in in actual conflicts um sort of a, a not particularly effective kind of conflict with vietnam and sort of some stuff with cambodia aside it's not a battle-tested force at all like in the late 70s too like a long time ago i mean the last time they used tanks were on their own people in tiananmen square yeah. um that to be fair they were the internet but yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they did. did. Unlike the Armada 14, they didn't stall on the middle of the highway. So that's, but I mean, mm. horrific jokes aside, um, it is an untested military. And I think as a one party state with a lot of propaganda, a lot of central control, they are vulnerable to the same kind of uh, military challenges as Russia is, which is a lot of military exercises that show the leadership what they want to see. Um, there's, there was a fantastic article a while back about how when the Chinese military practices amphibious landings on a mock Taiwan, they pick a beautiful spring day and a sandy beach with, with flat waves so that the victorious uh, you know, PLA team can overrun the red team and gloriously sweep to victory because that's kind of what the party expects. So, so they don't know how good their stuff is. And potentially this could be a way that they could test a lot of their equipment in battlefield conditions against Western tech, which is actually quite hard to do, even if you're supplying it to, um, to other parts of the world where there are conflicts. Here you have really good soldiers in the Ukrainians firing some comparatively modern Western gear. Like you will get the opportunity to shoot in the Abrams, which you don't get anywhere else. Yeah. Right, so you would what send like you you would supply Russia with that stuff and say part of the deal is we're going to have a couple of military military advisors in the field like assessing it, watching it, you know, like taking taking away how it performs, where it needs to be, you yeah. know, the issues that arise basically. Oh, yeah. listen, just wait for Ukrainian drone footage and analyze that <laughs> when the Ukrainians inevitably light this stuff yeah, from up from the comfort of your lounge chair. <laughs> Some poor Chinese hacker (laughs) having to, like, remove the Ukrainian rock song and, like, Shiba Inu dog that the the TikToker has placed it on top of this footage to try to get some analysis out of it. Mm. But, I mean, so that could be be an angle. It could also be an angle to, to see how much... You could also really cloud the waters with this. We've been discussing exclusively China supplies weapons in a really open way. That's been kind of our premise. What China could use this to test is how much can they get away with plausible, implausible deniability. If crates of this stuff just start turning up, okay, maybe not modern Chinese drones that you couldn't definitely couldn't get anywhere else, but if just a suspicious amount of recently washed artillery shells with the, you know, the Chinese mm. characters scrubbed off start turning up on the battlefield and the US says you're providing lethal aid and China says no we're not it would be a useful experiment for them to see how would that play out so i think and and, I th- and obviously we've got to wrap up here but i think that's a, that's a that's goes back to why the US has announced it pre bunking yep. this idea so what we saw before the invasion was 3 months of the US 5 months of the US warning that Russia was going to invade this time and telling it not to uh, which, you know, the U.S. credibility, particularly in intelligence matters, was at rock bottom. And I would argue it's recovered significantly mm. since then. Um, but before it, you had this issue of like, OK, we, we think Russia's going to do this, but no one's going to believe us. How do we make people believe us? Well, we're going to say that they're going to do it publicly. We're going to make all that stuff public. And when they do it, everyone will be like, oh, my God, the U.S. was telling the truth. And perhaps they're running the same playbook here saying, Hey, we see stuff that you are, we see evidence that you're going to share this stuff before you've shared it. We're not saying you you've made the decision yet, but we're seeing evidence that you're considering it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Then, as you say, weirdly, some more shells start turning up in in in, the, in eastern Ukraine. You know, it, it's almost unthinkable that you know there wouldn't be some Chinese equipment captured, and even if it's scrubbed, you can be like, hey, we know this has come yeah. from here. You combine that with the pre-bunking. And the world goes, China's actually supplying yeah. it. They're trying, they're trying to get away with it, but they are 100% supplying it. So I think that's when you kind of go back to why the US is announcing this. I don't actually think it's like a, a putting pressure on China in like the broad sense. I think it's this pre-bunking approach strategy that the CIA and the intelligence services have started to roll out in, in, in this war. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and I think uh, to, just to finish, two, two other things it lets you do 
is, as you say, pre-bunks, and it a lot of the U.S. strategy was just about avoiding the ability of Russia to do false flags. If U.S. intelligence says you're about exactly. to attack, and then you stage something and claim you were provoked, U.S. intelligence was like, yeah, but we, we told, like, we warned that you were about to do that a week before the so-called provocation. And as you say, it's, it's right. uh, a, a potentially similar phenomenon here. The, the other thing I think it lets it forces someone to do is, as happened, ask Yi, the Chinese head diplomat, straight up to his face, are you about to do this? And then he's forced right. to either... And he's on the record saying no. And he's no. on the record saying no, which just, again, it doesn't mean they won't do it. They could just make him a liar retroactively. It but just it, paints, it paints them into a yeah. corner and raises the cost, exactly. right? Yeah, that's, that's, what this, that's what so much of foreign policy is about. It's you're just trying to change the other guy's equation. You're moving those variables the calculus, yeah. in the direction that you want them to move. And I think that's a, that's a good place to wrap okay. up. Well, so like, final question, are they going to do it? Are China going to provide Russia with arms or military assistance? I don't believe it. I think they are currently... I think no. the, the one thing we haven't discussed, because it kind of goes without saying, is that right now China sees Europe as the, the ball game to play for. Um, they are trying to rebuild mm -hmm. relations with Europe. They are trying to keep Europe comfortable in the, yeah, we share some of, for that. some of US concerns, but there's so much money to be made and surely China's you know, a better as a frenemy than an enemy and we don't need to do anything drastic. That sets all of that on fire. Um, Europe's not going to sit idly yep. by when like Chinese tanks turn up 500 kilometers from Poland. So I think that is... Apart from all of the reasons we would prefer they not do it, I think fundamentally it's just they're not ready for the confrontation with the West. They don't want to burn their relationships with Europe. And the volume of stuff Russia actually needs, like the millions of kilos of equipment that would make a difference for the Russian military, are so vast they couldn't possibly hope to hide it. Mm -hmm. I agree. I don't think they will. I don't think the, the, the equation is certainly not in, in favor of them doing that. Wonderful. That's a great place to finish. I was really worried we were going to talk ourselves into uh, World War Three here, but we appear to have talked ourselves out of it. We'll wait until a week and uh, then they do it and we look like absolute idiots and we take this off the internet. <laughs> I like that you think there would be an internet at this point. That's very optimistic. But maybe, maybe that's an upside for us. Uh, all right. Well, thank you everyone so much for, for tuning in to uh, Nerds Debate Foreign Policy. Um, hopefully there were some things we said that were interesting for you. I'm sure there were lots of things we said that you disagreed with and hopefully one or two that you didn't think were completely insane. Uh, for We would love if you would drop a like and a subscribe on the video and of course on the podcast and sign up to International Intrigue. It's the best newsletter going and we know that because your fans keep telling you that and you keep tweeting it. So it must be true. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, uh, I'm Dimitri and with me is John and this has been Intrigue Explained. Mm -hmm.